seconds flat. Give me up. Look at Bill! Look at Bill! This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Zero. Oh, my gosh. Hi again, friends. You are listening to Mile 73 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. We're excited to be back with you. We're going to pick up from where we were last week. In our question and answer episode, we have a wide range of topics to cover to help you in your training. Before we dive back into that, I want to remind everybody we have the new YouTube channel, Seconds Flat by Run In. We have that linked in the show notes. Also, we'll have the race preview and course strategy for the upcoming Greenville Half Marathon next time in mile 74. That's the first race in this year's run-in race series. Hope you're signed up. Look forward to seeing you out there for one of the big races every year. And it'll be fun for a lot of us to get the chance to race again after so many months off. And we've heard the calls. The Seconds Flat Apparel with the new logo will be available soon. So we will keep you up to date and let you know when you can purchase that at Run In or through us here on the podcast at secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. Without further ado, let's jump back in to our questions and answers. All right, coach, next question. How much sleep does a runner need? Is there a formula based on mileage or how do you judge that? More, more is my answer. I like it. I don't have a specific formula for you, but I'll try to make it easy. This question did not ask me to rank the most important elements of good training, but I'll do it anyway, since it helps answer the initial question. Going out and running is number one. You have to run to get better at running. Then there are a lot of other elements that affect your training growth. We hear people call these the 1%. They're probably worth more than 1%. Strength, nutrition, job stress, so on, so on. But I'll put recovery and specifically sleep as my number two. So it's super important to me. More concrete answer, maybe. Mm -hmm. If you ever get to the point where you think lack of rest is negatively impacting your training, and you start asking yourself, should I sleep more instead of getting a few miles? The answer is probably yes. Mm -hmm. You should sleep more. I am not talking about the person who rolls over day after day and turns off the alarm just because it's cold out. It's January and I don't want to go run. Yeah. That comes to a point that Kyle Merber brought up when he was on the show recently. You don't even make the decision. You don't even have to worry about the motivation. A choice was made a long time ago, and it's a lifestyle, and you just get used to it. I know you and I would say it's one of the best parts of the day. I'm looking forward to doing it. Even once I get up, shoot, let's go do it. Yeah. If you're dedicated and consistently doing the right things, then that's when it's the time to say, okay, I need to prioritize sleep. As far as number of hours... I'll take almost as many as I can get. There is some evidence that when you get in like really long, long sleep on multiple days in a row or multiple days of a week, that 
you're just going to start feeling sluggish, lethargic. Like nine, ten hours a night, that's probably the threshold there. Yeah, I, I was speaking more to those problems coming when you start banking on, oh, I got to I gotta get 13, 14 hours oh. of sleep a couple of days because I've only slept like four for <laughs> right. however long. Right. You know, like that's when you're going to start having yeah. issues. You know, to your point about nine or ten hours of sleep, you know, for example, Shalane Flanagan, religiously in her training was nine hours of sleep, going to bed at nine, waking up at six, mm-hmm. and getting up and doing a run. Ben True, great 5,000-meter road runner, famously on the track as well. When he's in that training cycle, he typically won't even set an alarm. Mm-hmm. It's just you get up and go. But there's a, a, a line between that and being a sloth, as I said, and, and just sleeping the whole day away. Right. Uh, moreover... There's a really good sleep study. I believe it's from BYU, almost certain, that shows great training value in not just the number of hours of sleep, but a consistent sleep cycle. Mm-hmm. And they controlled a lot of variables, and it had to take some very disciplined, willing participants. Mm-hmm. But they were able to work this study from the angles both of hours of sleep and also time I went to bed, time I got up. Mm-hmm. Their study shows that going to bed at the same hour or approximately the same hour was the most important variable in carrying over sleep into good training. The idea here being that bouncing around a lot and um, let's say you get eight hours, but you get them from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. one night and 12 to 8 the next and 10 to 6 the following night, and then 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. when the weekend rolls around, those eight hours aren't as good, as productive, excuse me, for your training as they would be if uh, you consistently got them from 10 to 6, let's say. Yep, that makes sense. I've experienced that. Some nights I have to work late, and on those nights I'll make sure I'll sleep till you know, let's say I go to bed at midnight, I'll get up at eight and it just doesn't feel the same when I get out yeah. for the run either later that morning or in the afternoon as the consistent, you know, 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. I usually have and get up and doing that morning run. So consistency, I would say that that's key for sure. Last point for me is I'm typically pushing for eight to nine hours myself to really feel good and do yeah. this as well as I, I can. And that can be tough because sometimes I'm getting up at 5 a.m. or some early time so you got to go to bed early but yeah for the most part the more you can get the better and a lot of us just not getting enough of it let's move on to racing Mm -hmm. Um, do you have any advice on how to use tune-up races in the same vein should you be periodically testing yourself and adjusting paces and and what is reasonable time frame to expect improvement sure i would counter by asking do you enjoy racing Oh, I do. Okay, because if so, I say, let's tune up. Uh, I'm not sure of the ultimate goal race for this question, the person who submitted this question. Uh, let's start by saying it's a marathon. Mm-hmm. In that case, there is a place for 10K, 15K, 10-mile, half-marathon racing okay. in the buildup. And in fact, we could probably race those distances more frequently as they are great workouts that don't require a super extended recovery. You could probably run all those distances in your training and within a week, just run easy for a week, even after a half marathon and be right back into your training cycle. Okay. Um, 
there's there's not a ton of 15Ks and 10-mile races out there. If you can find them, it's great work because, like, depending on your ability level, 10K, 15K, 10-mile for most of us, half marathon for elites, it's going to be around those threshold values. Mm-hmm. It's like doing the best tempo threshold workout that you can get. Okay. So do the 15K. For example, after doing Gate River Run 15K a year ago, I came back in on a Wednesday, had a relatively normal workout like four days afterward. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're really great training stimuli. Now, with that said, I could train for months without a race. And if you're like that, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Think about where you find joy in running. If the training is as exciting to you, it can certainly be as valuable. Stick with that. But if you like to race, go for the tune-ups, especially those distances that can be really valuable in building to your target. Mm-hmm. A note of, of caution if you're targeting a shorter race. I would never ask someone with a goal 5K in three months to go run a 5K every weekend. You may want to do one or a couple to get the racing experience and and the sharpening. Yeah. But don't put the pressure on yourself of like every weekend's a 5K and I just got to hammer, 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 and I'm going to get better that way. Those other race distances we already mentioned could probably be more valuable and, and you need also time for improving through your training. If you're constantly racing, you're yeah. never training, if you want to call it racing yourself into shape, mm-hmm. um, which to a degree can happen, but it's probably not something you want to depend on. Right. But it, even if you're racing that 5K, again, the threshold work that lays such an important piece of your foundation, you can get in a 10K or a 15K or a 10 mile. So yeah. I like those, and and I have to hold myself accountable on that too. As racing returns, I'd like to race more as well Mm -hmm. and enjoy it and do more of those distances because I think it has a a big value. Let's put a 15K in instead of some hard interval session you have planned, and you might be better off for the marathon that you have coming up two two months later. Probably not two weeks, two (laughs) months. Since I had the slip of the tongue... Two weeks is probably about the latest time you would want to touch any of those. And for most people, you probably don't want to do that. Okay. But you you will see, particularly among elites, like famously Alberto Salazar, before he went and had his performance at the Boston Marathon in the Duel in the Sun, I think it was like 10 days earlier, had an incredible track 10K and a showdown with Henry Rono and Eugene when Rono almost broke his own world record and Salazar was right on him. Mm-hmm. So there's exceptions. Rod Dixon spoke to in the lead up to his victory at New York, running a hard mile like a week out. He normally did a two mile time trial and decided to do a mile without a watch and just see what he ran and in the heart of marathon training runs something like in the four-ish minute range and thought, yeah, I'm ready to roll for this. So mm-hmm. there's exceptions, but that was more a slip of a tongue. I was thinking like in the core of your training, you know, in that phase when you're 10, 12 weeks out, 14 weeks, whatever it is, maybe up to four weeks is probably the best time okay. to implement one of those races. That's one of the reasons I'm excited about this run and race series. Yeah is to pepper in some races and into 
my training build to the marathons. Trying to do a couple of those this year. Last point I'll make adds to adjusting your training paces. Yeah. It needs to happen, but don't get caught up in doing it every time you PR. Mm. Find some consistency first. Have a real sense that you're ready for progressing training paces, and then it might be time. I think we have another question later on that's to that end specifically. So we'll, we'll okay. dive into that again. Okay. Another question. Should I stretch before or after my run? Mm. Okay. First point. I value mobility in running over flexibility. Mm. Those are two different things. Movement through a proper range of motion has more application to running than just sitting and reaching. As the caveat, I do see plenty of utility and merit in being a complete athlete and not just a runner. Yeah. So doing other sports or activities can help us grow, and that's great. That can actually improve your running. Mm -hmm. And those activities might include static stretching. For example, I love yoga, and I think it's helped me, kept me healthier and stronger. And at times in yoga, I might be in a static pose-like pigeon mm -hmm. for a very extended period of time. Yeah. So back to the original question. If we value mobility, and running, of course, prioritizes motion through space then active or dynamic stretching before running makes logical sense okay on easy days that might be a simple gentle lunge matrix to get loose mm -hmm. or perhaps leg swings after a few minutes or miles of light jogging that's something i'll do on a lot of easy days is mm -hmm. get a couple miles in and then do some leg swings and then before harder efforts, we might incorporate more advanced warm-up drills. I love the stuff we have in our new warm-up series on the YouTube channel. Yeah, me too. That moves from smaller to larger ranges of motion, mm -hmm. becomes more run-like as it progresses, and targets the entire body. Right. So that's perfect for workout or race days. Okay. We might turn to traditional stretching in the post-run period. Okay. But I still like a lot of active stuff even after a run. Really? Again, it's about increasing mobility. I've even heard the phrase juicing the joints. Okay. For what post-run active stretching can do for you. So sometimes on an easy day, you might want to end with a set of drills. Okay. Uh, or you could do some of the stuff from our hip series that has some strength and mobility to it. Mm-hmm. But the data indicate what you might think of as traditional stretching, if you choose to do it, probably fits better post-run than pre-run if we have to put it in a silo. I'll use an analogy here. Think of trying to stretch a rubber band as far as you can. If you just grab that thing cold and pull it as hard as you can, it snaps, mm -hmm. right? You'll break it. But if you gradually stretch it back and forth, extend it farther and farther and farther. You can get this huge range in the rubber band. And that is how I perceive pre-run or pre-race dynamic stretching. Okay. I can mix metaphors here too. Take this now and think about a rope with a knot in it. Mm -hmm. If you had a rope with a knot in the center, if you stretch that knot at either end, it's excuse me, stretch the rope at either end, Yeah. it's only going to tighten the knot. Right. You have to work the knot out gently at its source. Mm -hmm. 
And that's how I perceive post-run stretching that we sometimes do when we when something feels tight. Maybe going back to some active stuff afterward or foam rolling first could be better for that specific situation. Okay. Sometimes I don't get to doing those stretches right after my run. Is there like a time period in which it's helpful uh, or, or if I have to wait a couple hours, is it still worth doing after that that time? Yeah, if you've had to wait a couple hours, I guess I would evaluate that you're kind of back almost into a pre-run sure. phase. Yeah. So I would probably want to address it the same way that I do okay. before I run. Okay, that's good to know. All right, next question. What are your hydration strategies during long runs? Do you carry bottles or leave bottles along the course or what do you do? Super question. That's applicable for so many of us. I often want my hydration to replicate what it's going to look like in a racing situation. If you will carry a bottle or wear a vest in your competition, then it's worth practicing it that same way. I don't, so I typically don't practice it that way. Mm. I used to live in Florida. There were some super hot summer runs, long runs, maybe that we didn't have much access to water fountains. I might pull out a vest for that. Or if I'm, you know, some super long trail run I'm doing, I might have a vest for that. Otherwise, um, that's not what I'm going to see during racing, so I'm probably not going to practice it that way. To the point of leaving bottles on your course, that's a great idea. If you can make it happen, I've done that before. I think it's fantastic. I'll suggest some other options, though, for you. One of our favorites that, I mean, you've been along on plenty of long runs with a group of guys where we've done this is creating some sort of looped course. So if we're doing a 20 miler, we hit a one 10 mile loop and come back near where we started. And maybe we have drinks in the cars or or near your house so that you can get your hydration and nutrition. Right. You need it. And then go back on a different 10 mile loop. Yeah. I've always Uh, enjoyed those. Another thing is scout out the local water stops in advance and know how those translate to what water stops might look like on your course. So you got to get on your course website and figure out where they're giving out stuff and what they're giving out. Yeah. For example, I know here I can pretty much year round hit that fountain on the Swamp Rabbit Trail uh, at the boxcar at the Berea crossing. I think that is that Sulphur Spring Road. And it's almost on point four miles out from Linky Stone mm-hmm. in one direction. And then the other direction, it's about two miles out from Furman. Yep. Certain times a year, those places both have water fountains that are turned on. So mm-hmm. I know those distances apart. But then I also know if I'm doing an out and back, how far away I am from that one water fountain that is pretty much year round available here. I know in certain parts of the country that's limiting because you know when it gets cold, fountains get turned off so i would also add can you get someone to do a bottle handoff for you Mm -hmm. could possibly meet someone at a mileage that is similar to where there will be water stops on your race course so now we're getting it at the time that we're going to get it in the race and we're practicing a handoff just like you have to get from the water stop in your race Mm -hmm. Uh, and they might be able to i've done this before pass you a bottle put a rubber band around the bottle and stick a gel in there. Yep. And now I can get nutrition that I don't have to carry with me for my entire run. 
And if you have really great friends or family who will sacrifice some time for you, the ultimate is getting someone to maybe bike along with you. That's a great idea. Then you have the fellowship. You have aid right there with you if needed. And that person could play a pacing role for you too. True. So good idea. All great options. Yeah. Next question. When is the right time to get a coach? Simply put, at any stage of training, it can be beneficial, whether it's looking for guidance on technique or more specific direction with training. The main point, though, to consider is we all have blind spots, Mm -hmm. right? We offer our adult training programs here and have athletes working on goals from mile to marathon. But even those of us at the podcast with lots of running experience still have those blind spots. So I have people I go to for thoughts on my own training. Yeah. You know, human nature is to do the thing we like in training rather than perhaps what we need mm-hmm. if left to our own devices. One of a coach's biggest priorities then is to get a runner to do the things in training that he or she might not otherwise want to do. That doesn't always mean hard things, right? Mm -hmm. It it could be pulling back or slowing down, but we all have those blind spots. So so just be aware, be reflective, and and think about what is appropriate for your situation. Mm -hmm. If, If you're looking for help with this, reach out to us and maybe we can help or maybe we can direct you to someone who's a better fit for you too. That's great. I know it certainly was helpful for me once I hit that marathon goal I had to to push me past that. It was definitely helpful to have a more formal relationship with a coach. Um, definitely helpful. What shoes are you running in now and which ones were your favorite in 2020? Yeah, so I think in the past we've done a kind of best of the year that we didn't get to do this year. So I'm glad we got this question. I think this comes from uh, our man, friend of the show, Phil Gregory. Oh, yeah. To preface this answer, I run in neutral shoes, typically lightweight, so I'm answering it within that framework. Okay. If you don't know what type of shoe might work best for you, go get a gait analysis somewhere like Run In, where they can help guide you to the right footwear. Uh, and also, given my job, I have more access to multiple pairs of shoes to rotate than most of us. So. I'll couch this response by noting that I have a lot of shoes. Mm-hmm. It's many options. So for daily training and recovery, I've really enjoyed the New Balance 1080. Mm-hmm. New edition just came out, version 11 they're on now. That's maybe the most plush thing I go to. Nike Pegasus 37, I really liked both of those are not shoes I've historically run in a mm-hmm. lot. I just really like those additions. I'm I'm not necessarily model loyal with either of those. I just thought they did great work. The Saucony Endorphin Speed is what I ran in this morning, and that's been a great addition as a versatile shoe you could use for your daily stuff or maybe tempo runs or maybe workouts. So... Saucony really nailed it with that. I know that the the Endorphin Pro also is a great race shoe, so that line has been successful for them. Mm-hmm. On that note, I'll say from the super, <laughs> super, the super shoe racing yeah. category, I've really appreciated the New Balance RC Elite. It's light and it's snappy, but it's a softer shoe than some of its competitors, and and I like that. that 
So that's more of a preference play. Okay. I think it would be versatile for racing at a number of different distances. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the Skechers Razor Elite has been my newest entry into the lineup. I put that on for some recent hill repeat workouts, super lightweight. I liked just the normal Razor previous edition, so the Elite with the plate is great. In the end, though, I'd say I'm probably still going to the Nike next percent for most racing situations. What Cosmo, what are you uh, running in these days? Uh, for the marathons, half marathons, I'm running in that next percent. Um, I've enjoyed that. The version 10 of that New Balance 1080, mm-hmm. I, I've had three pairs of those. I love them. I, I don't know that I'm going to go to version 11. <laughs> I don't <laughs> well, know. I will say that version 11 underneath the shoe, yeah. un- underneath your foot, excuse me, is... Mm-hmm going to have that same feel so it should be pretty similar to what you've loved but i get it i've i've stocked up on some shoes i i have a pegasus uh, (laughs) turbo 35 from like three years ago that i just pulled out that's still in the rotation yeah yeah i enjoyed the pegasus turbo for long runs i was going to ask you what are you running your long runs in I have rotated my long runs between some of the long runs with quality in them. Mm-hmm. I'll use some of the shoes that are maybe a little bit more in the marathon racing category. Oh, okay. Like that RC Elite or that Endorphin Pro from Saucony. Okay. If it's more of just a typical long run or even a steady long run, I like the Pegasus Turbo a lot. Use that. I don't go to the shoe that I race in. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't much go to like the nike super shoe for the long runs i just you know i maybe put it on once or twice beforehand i might do a workout or i might do some strides and then mm-hmm. try to keep the miles off of those okay yeah let's move on what days should i do my strength work first be aware of your schedule and what is actually functional yeah because i could give you a timeline that in theory is perfect but it has to work with the time you have Mm -hmm. with that said the next step is determining why you are doing strength training and its priority level within your global training you should be doing it Mm -hmm. and i think injury prevention is the number one reason for most people yeah not everyone but for most distance runners Mm mm-hmm If that's you, then the next step is evaluating when you do your hardest running efforts uh, and then positioning your strength work around that to help in injury prevention and to not take away from the quality of the harder efforts. So if you do a quality workout on a Wednesday and a long run on a Saturday, in that scenario, then Thursday and Sunday, the days immediately after your hard efforts could be great for strength training okay it will help with hormonal releases that aid in recovery and it won't be positioned before a hard run so you're not potentially compromising your form and mechanics so if i did on sunday following a saturday long run Mm -hmm. i have until wednesday before i'm running hard again So now you have two times a week. Let's say you also like to do yoga, which has some strength in it. And you want to add that in addition to your, maybe you're doing weights on two days. You could be doing it on more. I'm just giving an example. Right. Uh, Let's say you like to do weights two days and yoga two days a week. Mm. 
and we put those weights in, in our example on Thursday and Sunday. And again, this answer is really couched from the position of doing things like general strength, med ball exercises, body weight exercises, things that are really restorative. Mm -hmm. They can have weights to them, but they're not the most explosive stuff. Not heavy deadlifts. Yeah, right. Cleans. Right. So you did those on Thursday and Sunday, and then we added another couple of days of yoga, some p possible options. Maybe if you work out in the morning, you could, on, on that Wednesday, later in the day on Wednesday could be a nice time for yoga. But you're also set up that, again, you went long on Saturday, you did weights on Sunday, you're not working out, out again till Wednesday. Monday would be this great day for like a medium long run. Mm-hmm. And your yoga potentially later in the day. Our, our new hip and core strength series yeah. on YouTube would be great to implement on those days. And there's basic and advanced features within the video. And then we mentioned the more explosive stuff. Even simple explosive stuff like plyometrics or sprints. More compound motions like Olympic lifts. Those have their place. They are immensely valuable. Yeah. I recommend referring you back to mile 15 when we did some more detailed stuff on strength training okay. uh, to look at those. I'm not saying they don't have a place. I think they have a great place. I'm maybe just answering because I think the person who asked this probably was like the typical distance runner looking at it more from my running is priority number one and this is a complimentary exercise. Yeah. That makes sense. I think I was the one asking this one. I, oh, well, there you go. My first buildup, I was uh, strength training, power clean, snatch, deadlifts, uh, three days a week, along with my four days of running. So it was, it felt almost contradictory to do some of these this heavy work along with the running work, but at the end, it, it worked out. I just, since then, have changed my schedule dramatically. So. Yes. Well, Daniel, everyone <laughs> who saw you charging into floor field on that... <laughs> Yes. First marathon victory thought that Lou Ferrigno had entered the facility. Um, Magnus Ver Magnuson, I believe, is that his name from World's Strongest Man from Iceland. I don't think doing those three times a week is necessarily contradictory. I think it has its place. Yeah. Um, I've done plenty of, of work and certification in strength and conditioning specific to runners. Mm -hmm. And that stuff's in the portfolio. Yeah. Most importantly with that, make sure you have really effective form, mm -hmm. know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of high level runners, especially sprinters, but distance runners some as well, doing the Olympic lifts. The Olympic lifts are fantastic lifts. Yeah, um, They probably have more value than, say, the bench press. Yeah. To a runner, right? Which we would recommend every day. Yes. I actually, <laughs> I'm benching right now. Uh, and... My current set, I am in 12 times one <laughs> rep max <laughs> right now. And what that means is I am barely getting the bar without any weight off my chest <laughs> right now. I've barely gotten it off the rack. Too uh, much. But what you get briefly when you do those Olympic lifts, yeah. the neurological coordination and firing that comes with those in addition to the strength. Yeah. If sequenced appropriately with your running, again, this has to be in a totally different discussion. We don't have time for it here. Yeah. It can work. Okay. So so don't just rule it out. But okay. look into if it's right for you and how it can fit with you. But yeah, the general stuff for injury prevention and general strength yeah. is probably the most important. Good call. 
What exactly is VO2 max and why is it important? <laughs> uh, this com- I know this one comes from uh, our friend uh, Carolyn. And when she sent it to me, I was uh, maybe a bit taken aback because it's not something that necessarily she's working on in her training. And it was just more of a general inquiry of, oh, I hear people talking about this. Yes. What, what does it matter? It sure could open up a can of worms for a lot of in-depth science, but let's... Let's keep it simple. That has been a goal in all of these answers is to take the complex and try to make it applicable for you. Mm-hmm. So VO2 max is the maximum amount of oxygen your body can consume during exercise. I would add to that in laboratory testing, it's done with incremental increases in effort. Okay. But you can break the name down into the three variables. Okay. V equals volume. O2 equals oxygen, max equals maximum. All right, so that's what you're looking at in the name. Why is it important? This is why I had the somewhat of sigh groan at the beginning of the discussion, Mm -hmm. because it is, but how valuable is it? Oh boy, that's, that's a whole lot of research literature that we would get into. So it approximately reflects cardiorespiratory fitness and potential endurance fitness. Maybe what's more significant to us as runners is if you added another lowercase v to the front of VO2 max and considered velocity at VO2 max, or if you ever see lowercase v, v, VO2 max, Mm -hmm. because now we're correlating it to the pace you can run at that maximal oxygen uptake. So now it's not just a number that's in a chart in the Daniels running formula or on a lab test that you got, it is actually correlated to a pace. So I'll add another question to the question, very Socratic of me, <laughs> that I think underscores its importance. How do we measure velocity at VO2 max? The typical quantifiers might be a 3K, 3,000 meter, or two mile, 3,200-ish meter mm-hmm. race. If you run two miles in 12 minutes, then six minutes per mile is a number that you could use loosely for your velocity at VO2 max. Now comes the value even more. You could possibly use that to determine training paces. Mm. For example, put it on a chart. Your 5K pace, if you're reasonably well-trained, might be 95 to 97% of velocity at VO2 max. Okay. For that person who we picked who did the 12-minute two-mile, it's probably somewhere in that range. So that person's 5K pace should theoretically be around 6.15 per mile. Okay. If you haven't run a 5K and you're training for one, you might put 6.15 in as like 5K goal pace for some sort of workout that okay. you're doing. If you really want to work VO2 max, you might be better off working it at actual 3K or 2-mile pace rather than 5K. But that's a different discussion. Mm -hmm. There's protocols that would suggest one of the best workouts you could do for building it would be 5 by a K at 5K pace on relatively short rests down to even 60 seconds. It could be a pretty tough workout, but it's theoretically a, a good VO2 max workout. Maybe. You can see the value both in determining workout paces for longer races and in how closely connected this is to your racing at distances like 3,000 meters, 2 miles, 
5,000 meters. So improving VO2 max normally has a pretty direct impact on your performance in those races. Okay. Now let's balance that by countering it with some limitations. And this was the the reason that I said there's a whole bunch of literature that we could go through on, on its value. To hit a few points that would counter VO2 max being a be-all, end-all, for some research suggests a person with an exceptionally high VO2 max number may see that come at the expense of efficiency. Think of this perhaps like you have a Lamborghini engine, but you get the gas mileage of a huge SUV like a Hummer, mm-hmm. okay? That there could be this conflict that leads to you being inefficient in your motion. I, I believe there was a study 2018-2019 on a, uh, a cyclist who at the age of like 18 was measured with this uber high VO2 max number that was like top of the world mm-hmm. type number. But then within several years had fallen away from the sport and was no longer competitive at the highest level. Alex Hutchinson, the the uh, writer in Outside Magazine who does the Sweat Science blog, dove into this study and followed up on it and showed that, well, they're finding in laboratory situations that maybe a guy like that with that really high VO2 max has efficiency and economy issues. Next, VO2 max might not correspond as well to longer distance races. While it suggests that you have a high ceiling, other variables probably hold more significance in a half marathon or a marathon. If you look at the research behind the Nike Breaking 2 project, where Elliot Kipchoge goes under two hours, those scientists said what they called critical speed was the most significant variable in determining marathon, ex- marathon success. Is that the same as CV? No. So what does critical speed mean yeah, to yeah. them is okay. important. You're referencing critical velocity that is a pace we've touched on at times that might be in like an 8K or 10K range, depending on the athlete. Okay. To them, they saw critical speed as something roughly around the pace you could run for an hour. So that's more similar to what we've described with threshold training. That's just a touch slower. Mm-hmm than CV. So running at that pace probably has more bang for your marathon buck than hard VO2 max work does. Okay. Alternately, maybe the hard VO2 max work is in an earlier cycle where you work on faster stuff Mm -hmm. and then you transition into more specific stuff. You know, we've discussed this kind of funnel of specificity. Right. The third point I'll add to that is If you're more of a novice runner, a two-mile race is actually probably too long for accurately determining your velocity at VO2 max. So a seven or 10-minute test, there's a number of different protocols out there, may be better for you. I've seen used folks who are more speed-oriented use a mile test and take a mile times... Your mile time multiplied by 0.91 is the number used for your velocity at VO2 max. And so if you're working with a more like 400, 800 mile oriented person than a 5K, 10K oriented person, that might be a more accurate reflection. Okay. Or if you're working with someone who hasn't done a lot of training, again, running for two miles could be really, really hard. You might be better off going to seven minutes let's say, to accurately measure velocity VO2 max. Hopefully you see it's just one ingredient in the recipe of training. 
and not a single determinant in your success, but gives you an idea of what it is and why. Right. Yeah, you see it a lot in these training calculators or these pace calculators that you you know plug your times into to try to figure out sure. what your workout pace should be. It's a good question. But let's get back to that funnel of specificity that you were talking about earlier. Speaking to progressions of different workouts over a training cycle, it seems that you could progress an interval workout over time by changing the total volume or speed of intervals, duration of rest, or even the length of intervals. What type of training benefit would these progressions provide? And how do you know which is the most beneficial? Great question. Uh, I do think we left one option out in that list, and that is the option of don't change anything, Mm -hmm. run the same workout, and show progression by seeing that your rate of perceived exertion decreases. Mm, yeah. uh, that can be effective, really effective in small chunks, like four or six weeks, and especially for beginners. Yeah. So if you're starting out, that might be another option to consider. But the options that are presented are great, so let's work from those. Okay. My most important piece of advice here is don't try changing all the variables at once. If you stick to one of those variables, you can probably make an effective adaptation. So don't overthink it and don't tinker with too many things that might lead you down the road of burnout or injury. Yeah, I always like manipulating rests, for example, because if you can do the same workout with far less rest, mm-hmm. it's a sign that you might be ready to adjust some of the other variables. Okay. And so it can be a safe one to adjust. As to the total volume variable, just be cautious that you don't overload it. The law of diminishing returns is real in running. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't work into the margins at times. But be wary of pressing too far or replicating the volumes of an elite genetic outlier. So uh, let me give you an example there. If you're doing work at a half marathon pace because we're getting ready to look at race strategy for half marathon Greenville. 20 minutes of work at half marathon pace could be great for you. You might eventually go to 30 or even 40, but for most of us, going beyond that becomes just too race-like in its demand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you could construct that workout multiple ways to consider the original question we got here. Two times 10 minutes is more challenging than four times five minutes, Mm -hmm. assuming the rests progress similarly. Let's just say, to dive into this deeper, you did four times five minutes at half marathon pace with a minute or 90 seconds of recovery and then went to two times 10 minutes at half marathon pace with two to three minutes of recovery, maybe. That could be a progression. However, you could make a next step and go to three by eight minutes. So the interval length has now contracted and we've taken a step back there. But the total quality of time of work at that intensity has increased. Mm -hmm. So that seems like a reasonable hypothetical progression again. I'm not telling you to go follow that 4 by 5 to 2 by 10 to 3 by 8 I am also saying, though, if the rests are appropriate, that's not the worst thing you could do. Right. right? Uh, So it gives you an idea. Those are workouts I'd be fine with. To tie it back into the original variables and a previous question that we had that was on the last episode. Yeah. I'll reiterate, don't get change uh, excuse me, don't get caught up in changing paces every time you nail a workout or have a big breakthrough race. 
Rather, change the paces after a period of consistent performance. Or if you've laid out a really logical plan for increasing work workout pace leading up to a race. That could be saying, okay, my target for a 10K is 8 minutes per mile. Can I hold the rest intervals constant and run 4 by a mile in 9, min- nine minutes? Then 2 weeks later, run 4 by a mile in 8.45? Mm-hmm. Two weeks later in 8.30 and so on till I can do it at my goal pace. I'm not necessarily saying I'd prescribe that, but I hope it gives you an idea of how to reasonably consider the speed variable. Yeah. And you know, as an aside, Coach Joe Vigil, who is one of my favorite coaches and people, he did excellent work at basing his interval training that they did at Adams States when they were multi-time national champions in that type of progression. To go with that, what's your current thinking on marathon pace training run? Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. It, it's a great topic. I love this topic. We could roll through three episodes here alone. Heck, we did a marathon training series a couple of years ago, so we kind of did. But my thoughts have evolved, and rather than building you that clock, I'll just tell you the time. Yeah. I don't assign marathon pace quite as much in training as I might have a few years ago, but it's still very important to me. It doesn't mean it's less important. It may be more. It's it's just, it's targeted to certain points of training. So I like to consider first why we use it. And I see two primary reasons. There's more, but these are the first two that I think about. One is experiential in finding comfort in the pace and ingraining the feel of the pace Mm -hmm. in preparation for race day that can also help us determine if the pace is even realistic Mm -hmm. am i reaching too far the second reason is the more physiological one the impact it can have on your body's fueling mechanisms at specific pace we can definitely improve that and get more efficient So understanding those two things, I'm going to include it, and I'm going to include it most likely in the specific period, that final period leading up to your marathon. Okay. I'm not doing as much of it earlier on, maybe, as I once did, with the exception of I still do really love, there's a couple Canova workouts, we'll talk about Coach Canova, where he might do like a 3K or a two-mile at marathon pace, and then the interval switches to something that's like strength based so it becomes this circuit of then he does some hills and then he comes back and does the marathon pace again so it's a little different construction not just marathon pace i kind of like that still i think those are good but more than likely earlier on i'm going to assign those things like 8k 10k 15k half marathon so to our earlier point on a previous question before on the last episode about tune-up races yeah here they are go run them okay Um, In practice, I see those as more effective in improving your overall fitness and racing ability. So I'll echo David Roach again from mile 70 that those workouts also lay the proper foundation for managing the longer grinding marathon pace stuff. And there's probably even that great bridge like between half marathon and marathon pace too for a real long tempo that's kind of in between when you're still improving, but you're getting better at feeling the race pacing. You know, anecdotally, you could say like Brooks Hansen's team is known for doing those long intervals where you're like five or 10 seconds per mile faster than goal marathon pace. And 
So that's probably working into that in-between half-marathon, marathon range. Okay. Uh, I'd say that marathon pace often seems more like a psychological than a phys- physiological construct, mm-hmm. um, meaning that we randomly pick a number that's round and say, I'm breaking four hours. Right. I'm breaking three hours. Yeah. Okay, what are we actually capable of? In a shorter race like a 10K, we more readily see the physiological adaptations that we are actually looking for in training connected to that pace in the race. Right. To the pace, marathon pace stuff itself, I like the constructions you see from Renato Canova, where it's typically within a long run at or around specific pace, specific marathon pace, excuse me. So I encourage you to read more of his literature and then just a brief detour, assuming that you're thinking about marathon pace, you might be doing it not for a marathon too, though. You you see steady state running, which often mirrors marathon tempo in a lot of different training for different distances. And it certainly has an aerobic impact, but doing that consistently, you spend more chips than it's worth for the return, mm-hmm. in my opinion. So maybe if you morphed it into a rhythm progression where you worked above across and then below faster than that pace it could be more effective okay let's talk a little bit about (laughs) self-care yes i'm a bath guy Uh, i i like some bubbles i like bubbles i like epsom salt in my bath i I like a hot bath Mm -hmm. but i also really enjoy an ice bath yeah are are they helpful and if so when um should i be taking either a hot or cold bath yeah Basic premise behind any use of ice is reducing blood flow to an area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cold constricts your blood vessels and is going to reduce swelling and also numb pain. Uh, so for those reasons, we see icing being most effective in the near term after an injury. Mm-hmm. Maybe something like within the first 48 hours. It might be less time than that even. But beyond that point, we want blood getting to the area because Fresh blood flow promotes healing. Okay. So as a broader answer, though, I would step back and say, I get a little nervous about anything that takes the place of our body's natural healing mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Let's not get dependent on, say, anti-inflammatories every time we're sore. Our body is telling us something with soreness, and it can heal that soreness with time. I don't want to preempt the body's natural processes. Mm Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we'll build resistance to that soreness over time with more exposures. Think about the first time you ran 10 miles versus how you feel after you've been doing it for years. Yeah. We adapt. Uh, Specifically to ice baths, I know there is research suggesting after you get out of the cold water and your blood vessels then dilate and open back up, that it helps flush the um, post-workout waste fluids, like lymph fluids, through your body. Okay. I'll say, though, for every study I see to that point, I do see some contradictory stuff, so I'm not certain there. I I do know this. The consensus among people who are proponents of ice baths is it's really a cold water bath. Something like 50 degrees is more optimal than close to freezing with the goal of getting a perception of feeling better and to some degree perception is reality. So... I'm just I'm somewhat hesitant on stuff that makes us feel better and maybe doesn't optimize the the benefit of the previous workout like just gentle active recovery might. Mm-hmm. And finally, I would recommend checking out a, a book called Good to Go 
on the science of recovery as specific to athletes. That's really interesting, looking at many different forms of recovery. And one point the author makes is any recovery modality is most effective if it helps you feel high re- highly relaxed. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm not particularly relaxed in a tub of ice. I'm more relaxed getting a massage. Yeah, that's nice. Well, speaking of books, mm-hmm. um, what is uh, the most inspirational running book that everyone should read? It's a great one to end it with. Yeah, I'm going to go fairly broad here. We've done some book recommendation episodes in the past, and I will direct you to one that is about a runner, but is not necessarily a run-specific story. And that way I think it connects with everyone, and that is Unbroken. The story of Louis Zamperini, an Olympic 5,000-meter runner, and later on a a war hero who is adrift in the Pacific Ocean for days and days and days on end, who is then a, a prisoner of war in a Japanese POW camp, and the story of survival, but also the inspiration of getting through it and what he then made of his life afterward when he struggled with his experiences and turned to a faith that became really profound. It is a story that you read like fiction, almost in disbelief, Mm -hmm. um, that a single man could experience so much. But you have to think to some degree his, maybe his experience as a runner played some role into the toughness that he showed later on beyond toughness. That's Mm -hmm. There's understatement of 2021 already, Um, but just a fabulous, fabulous book. It is in part a running story, but much, much bigger. And so for that reason, I think everyone could find some joy in it if you haven't already read Unbroken. You can see the movie too, but as you know, the movie's never as good as the book. The book is top notch. The movie's fine. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Thanks, coach. Yes. That's it? That's it. All right. Thank you all for listening into mile 73 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. We're going to put some of those resources in the show notes, link that stuff. This turned into two quality chunks of Q&A. So thanks again to everyone for sending in your questions and comments. We can't wait to talk to you again in mile 74. We'll see you then.